welcome back to Voices of Change. I'm your host, Celeste Imbo, and today we have a truly remarkable guest with us, Lucy Esapila. Lucy has made history as the first female regional coordinator of Caritas Africa. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Celeste. How are you doing? I am good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Fantastic. Lucy, it is a pleasure to have you here. Um, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey to becoming the regional coordinator of Caritas um, in Africa? That's, that's huge. Let us know. How did it start? Uh, thank you. So I am Kenyan and I'm living in Togo. And I started my journey at the Catholic Diocese of Mara. I was working for Caritas. I started as an assistant livelihoods program officer. And basically what we were doing is working with local communities to address food security challenges. And from there, I got into a bit of work on gender and communications, and eventually I became a registration manager. I was there for six years and got to work with communities on diverse issues, learned a lot, as this is a community where there are pastoralists there, they face the effects of climate change, they face also the effects of having to share very little resources such as water and pasture, and we had to work with them and see how to address some of the challenges. Later, I went to Caritas Kenya as the research communications and advocacy officer, and there I got to understand national level advocacy and also got into the international space. Then I came to Caritas Africa as the policy and advocacy officer, and I was working mainly on international cooperation, looking at the Africa Union, European Union relations, the United Nations space, and issues to do with the COP27. And then now I became the uh, regional coordinator in May when I was elected by the General Assembly. Congratulations. What an awesome CV. You've done amazing. Yeah, fantastic. Now, I was reading in your acceptance speech upon commencing your role at Caritas, you highlighted four significant approaches that are key to building resilient communities in Africa. Would you be able to just tell us about them? They were really fascinating. Um, thank you. So we have our strategic plan for the next six years, and we are hoping to build resilient communities in Africa. And because Caritas is church, one of the things that we have to do is to have engagements with the continental body of bishops, which is SECAM. They are here in Ghana, just our neighbors. And so what we want to do is how can we work together with the bishops of Africa to ensure that we are promoting ownership of Caritas, we are promoting ecumenical cooperation, and also Caritas synodality. So we want to enhance our pastoral collaboration and communication with them as we do our service of charity. We have the bishops involved and they are supporting us because first and foremost, the bishops are the fathers of charity and Caritas is the tool of the bishops for charity. And another thing that we want to look at is the building the organizational development and resilience. One of the issues that has been discussed a lot within this humanitarian development and peace discourse is on localization, building on local leadership. And we cannot be able to do this if we do not empower local actors. As a regional office, we are best here in Africa and we have a role to coordinate the 46 Catholic charity organizations. And we want them to be empowered to provide effective, timely and quality responses, whether it's on humanitarian, 
development and peace aspects. And as a region, we also have to see how can we continue to engage actors so that we can be strong enough to support our members. Another dimension that we want to do is advocacy. And one way for us to do this is to invest in research in order for us to get legitimacy of the messages that we are passing. We will be represented in COP28 in the coming days, and we need to have data to, to support the issues that we are saying. And this comes from the communities that we are working with through the parishes, through the small Christian communities. And the one thing that makes us stand out is we bring the voices of the communities on the ground to the international space so that they are able to be to be heard. Wow, amazing, amazing. So we have a lot to talk about today, um, but before we dive in to our chat, mm-hmm. let's jump into our getting to know you a little bit more session. Okay, so it's a quick fire round. I'm going to ask you some quick questions. Lucy, are you ready? Yes. I am. Good, 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 good. Okay, so... Yeah. Can you tell us a saint that inspires you and why? Saint Thomas Aquinas. He appeals to me. There's this side of me maybe many people do not know, but I really enjoy academia. I enjoy the whole writing, the academic discourse and learning. And I believe in the significant impact that education has in poverty eradication, in development. And Saint Thomas Aquinas is the patron saint for formal education, and he played a big role in promoting the Catholic truths, and he's a person, a saint that we can look upon if we want to strengthen our faith, and the only way we can do this is through Catholic education and also paying attention to the role that Catholic schools are are doing, especially in the context of Africa. If I think about the diocese where I'm coming from and the work that the Catholic Church did with schools through basic things such as provision of sanitary towels so that girls do not fail to go to school. And the church goes beyond the aspect of evangelization. It has a threefold ministry, evangelization, the liturgy, and the service of charity. And if you look at St. Thomas Aquinas and the life he lived and how he inspired us, despite coming from a very affluent background, he chose a simple life. And he is a saint that inspires me a, 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 a lot because of the, being a patron saint for education, the life that he lives, and it touches so much in the work that we do on a day-to-day. I think it's really interesting when you're talking about the church working in more than one way, so more than evangelizing, actually being providing um, things, things that people need, sanitary products for women, for children, for young girls. So a lot of people maybe don't really know that that's also what happens within the church. Um, So what is one item that you couldn't live without? I love hot water. I'm always having this hot water. Right now I have it here. It's it's my best friend. I cannot live without hot water. (laughs) Yeah. What is that for? For drinking to make a nice hot yeah, drink, drinking or and that, just yeah, in a general? Nice hot drink. Yeah, I love drinking hot water. I love soaking my feet in hot water. It is present with me every. I do a lot of things with hot water. I, I don't know where the fascination comes from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do like a foot spa. Have you tried a foot spa? Yes, that's yes, just yes. so relaxing. Yes. I must yes. say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that if, is me. <laughs> yeah. If you could. Yeah. 
If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that food be? That's a difficult question. For me, I'm thinking it's difficult. I love potatoes. I love it so much. So when I was working far away from my home, my mom, my late mom used to tell my siblings, Lucy's coming, let's make potatoes. I love them. Mashed potatoes, fried, crisps, boiled, all hash brown potatoes. I will eat potatoes for the rest of my life. In in my, uh, in the diocese, they used to call me Mama Viazi <laughs> in Kiswahili, meaning the mother of potatoes. <laughs> I will eat them every day. <laughs> Potato. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's a very good choice. And they're so yeah. versatile up there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I think yeah. we all love potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is one thing that you've always wanted to learn, but you haven't had the chance to learn yet? So I don't know how to swim, Celeste, and I wish I knew how to. You know, we have a beach here, Lome Beach, Marcelo Beach. We're by the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know how to swim, and sometimes oh, I imagine beautiful. if anything goes wrong and I fall in this water, I'm doomed. I have tried to go for lessons, but I've not managed. It's the worst thing that has I have not been able to do, but I really hope to learn someday. It's on my bucket list. Yeah, now that I'm by this sea. Yeah. Oh, that sounds beautiful. I think learning to swim is it's one of those amazing skills. You know, it's a life skill and. And even more than that, as you said, you're you're based near this beautiful beach by the ocean. I could just imagine it. You just want to dive in and just you know, frolic in the sea one day. I hope you do learn soon. Yes, I hope so. I need to stop running away from these waves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. When they're coming, it's a bit like, oh. Mm -hmm. But then you see lots of, like, kids having fun, fearless. And you're like, why, why am I scared? Yeah. <laughs> On my bucket list. We will revisit this next year. I will have lunch. Right, that's it. It's in my diary now. Next year, we're going to catch up. You're going to tell me <laughs> that you're now like Olympic swimmer. <laughs> I hope so. So since you've moved to, to Togo, what has been the best thing that you've discovered about living in Lome, I think it is, that you live in? Mm. Has there been like a really interesting place that you've visited so far or favorite food? I know you love potatoes. Have you discovered something else that you really like? I love fried plantain. I don't know if you have plantain. Mm. You you have it there in the UK? Yeah, yeah, we, we have it. Yeah, yes. we have it here. It's getting more popular now. Yeah, I discovered plantain here. Absolutely amazing. And one of the best things that has happened to me when I was thinking about this this morning, I'm coming from Kenya. And I'm coming from a different cultural context and it's busy there. It's really busy and whatnot, traffic, whatnot. Lome is a nice, beautiful seaside capital, not so busy. And what I have loved is my colleagues here, the secretariat, they have gone out of their way to ensure that uh, my transition is really interesting here. And then there's a Kenyan community here in Togo who have been really, really supportive. But the most uh, significant thing that I've come to love is mass in West Africa. It is different. It is beautiful. The music is lovely. You enjoy. I really enjoy attending mass here, the French mass. The music is quite something. I mean, I enjoy. They, they go out of the way to make you enjoy this Eucharistic celebration. It is quite different from back home here. Mm. 
Right, that's so interesting. And you yeah. feel in the mass, you feel like you belong there. Yes, you feel yes. very joyful after yes. mass. Yes, 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 yes. The music is uh, out of this world. Yeah, I've attended here and in Nigeria, and I think every Catholic should try one day and come to West Africa. Then they'll see what I'm talking about. It is. They go out of their way to praise God, to worship, to connect you to right. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how important is your faith in what you do, in your role, you know, this amazing role that you've got? How does your faith play into that? I always go back to this one thing which uh, Pope Benedict is talking about in Caritas Jesus, that the church has a threefold ministry to evangelize, to administer the sacraments through liturgy and then the service of charity. And three, this, these three duties, they cannot be, they are inseparable. And so Caritas is church. And Pope Francis says that a church without Caritas is not alive. And so what we do, what I love about it is that what we are doing, it contributes to evangelization and we are a universal church. So we do not discriminate. So where there is a need, there is caritas. And the, the most important thing about it all is you connect faith to development because every other person will subscribe to a form of faith. And through our parishes, we're able to meet different people. And as agents of socialization, we can pass different messages on the protection of the environment and also loving our neighbor. So it, it comes in very well. And I think for me, this is the most beautiful thing that has ever happened to me, that the gift of Caritas, that we're able to make a difference in our very small ways. So my faith is important for me in this role because it's the work of God at the end of it all. It's his mission. It's his assignment. We've only been sent. Yeah. So we were really grateful to have you join CAFOD last year when you attended COP um, in, uh, in Egypt. Mm -hmm. So our listeners will be tuning in from around the world. We're so blessed to have people around the world who are supporters of CAFOD. Um, and they'll be tuning in around the time of COP28 in Dubai, um, which is a significant event. Could you share with us your perspective then on climate change issues, specifically facing Africa, and the progress that's been made since your participation in COP27? So uh, the context of Africa is quite difficult. If you look at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their sixth report, they highlight that we are not on track to keep within reach of the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit, which was agreed in Paris. And there is evidence that we need to keep our global emissions below that, and we must reduce them by 45%. Now, here's the interesting dynamic. Africa is warming faster than the rest of the world. And if we do not address this issue, we will keep having these adverse impacts on African economies and societies. If you look at the context of Kenya right about when we were traveling to COP27, I remember in the Diocese of Marsabit, where we had a big problem with drought. And early this year, I was in Malawi, and you remember there was a cyclone there. They had issues to do with floods. And if you come to this side of West Africa, we've had issues to do with insect infestation. 
And so there are issues that are happening within the African continent which are tied to climate change impacts. And when these things happen, another aspect comes up, migration. People are forced to move because of uh, climate, because you're moving in search of food, water, pasture. When floods happen, people have to relocate. So it could be internally or it could be among border communities. And then another dimension is on food systems. Where as there's a group of people who have enough of food to eat, there's a group of people who do not have. And one of the reasons is because when there's drought, we don't have uh, enough food. It, it, uh, it affects the harvest. It affects food production. And then because of this uh, erratic patterns, sometimes it will rain. And then people will have food being produced. Then we will have food loss and food waste. And there's a clear problem over there because of the way food interacts with the climate system. One, the way we are processing food, in fact, the way we are producing it at first, when we are producing food with harmful fertilizers, we are affecting food safety. It has impact on the soil health. And then the way we are processing it, we are depending on fossil fuels, even to transport this food from one place to another. You saw when there was the war in Ukraine and the disruption that occurred during the in the supply chains, there was a problem there. And so even the way we are uh, ensuring that the production meets the consumer, there is a problem there. If food has to be distributed along very vast places, we have to depend on fossil fuels. And so the whole food systems from the processing of food to the marketing it, to the distribution of this food, there is a problem there and we need to look at how this food system is interacting with climate and so within the context of Africa, you will see there's a dependency on fertilizers. We are depending on inputs. Instead of going back to the simple things which we have been doing, promoting agroecology, so that the food is safe for us to eat, so that we're able to build communities who are working together to enhance the food system, to enhance the local market system. And as we do this, we are building uh, resilient communities where smallholder farmers are producing food in safe ways that will be safe for us to consume, and that other community members are able to purchase. The market system is close to that. So within this context of climate, we are facing loss and damage. We are facing climate-induced migration, and we are facing aspects of food systems. And I have brought up the issues of fossil fuels because we need to decarbonize urgently. And also the way the world is right now, as we industrialize, we are depending more and more on products such as plastic and we are leading to plastic pollution, we are leading to the cutting down of trees, mm -hmm. and it's affecting, it's affecting the environment. And so these are the contexts that we are dealing with with Africa, and we are hoping that more can be done because the progress cannot be quantified as such. Yeah, I think you, you, you just said really a lot there about what is truly, truly happening. And I think people have been talking about it and bringing it up and the fossil fuels uh, oh. that needs, just need to stop. and But then it's like, well, everyone's using it. They're depending on it now just to keep this food system mm -hmm. going that is not actually fair to everybody. And uh, as you said, people just are very dependent on it. And then if something now uh, interrupts it, for example, a war, then now it just leads to so many repercussions around the world. So there has to be another way, basically. I wanted to say uh, Africa has good percentage of arable land, 
And if you look, most of its produce is imported, I think 85%. And so how do we build resilient communities when we look at the impact of climate change and building this support towards smallholder farmers so that they are able to produce enough food for them to eat? And in a way that we are not dependent, the way you said on fossil fuels, on these inputs that we have to always buy fertilizers that are harmful to us. So the dynamics are quite uh, disturbing when you look at a continent with so much resources. But the, we face a lot of challenges. I mean, when we have drought in Kenya, I think the side of West Africa, which is able to produce food, should be able to support them. Not that we have to keep importing. And uh, it places us at a very weak position, especially in the international trade system. So these are the dynamics that we need to look at. The climate system, food systems, the impact of climate change on the communities themselves, and how do we work together with the communities in Africa for them to be empowered, to be resilient. Absolutely. And you know, you, you touched on agroecology. Mm. Would you be able just to give our listeners just a brief sort of explanation to clarify what that is and why it's so important now. Okay, so what we have been promoting when we went to COP last year with CAFOD is to see the adoption of agroecology because of its promotion, its potential to transform the food system. And it has 13 principles, and I'll name just a few. One, like recycling and efficiency. Instead of waste, we are recycling. We are recycling in order so that we can be able to use things efficiently. We're also calling for solidarity, community groups coming together so that as you're here, you're doing your farming in this system, we're able to learn from each other. And through, through building this community solidarity, we build the community work. We are not living as individuals. Even the Catholic social teacher calls on us for her to have this call to participation. And then there's this aspect of use of organic fertilizers instead of synthetic fertilizers. Synthetic fertilizers lead to affecting the, they affect the soil health. So we call for the use of organic products. And then another aspect is the use of indigenous knowledge. I'll mention when communities, these local communities, they are able to look at some dimensions and they can be able to tell some early warning systems like there's a problem with this, and this could be an indication that there will be drought. So how do we harness that knowledge? They understand the indigenous seed. Uh, sometimes we find ourselves in the politics of agribusiness buyers where we push certain products to communities and we say, this is the law. You must produce this kind of food. You must use this seed. And sometimes they come even with conditionalities, the loans that are given to us. So these are the, these are the kind of seeds that you're supposed to use. Yet we undermine the local knowledge because they understand their context. They have been planting this since time, this knowledge that is coming from their forefathers. And so agroecology has about 13 principles about production that pays attention to the needs of the environment. It's not about profit maximization, that we will go and do monocropping, planting one, one crop in large vast feeds using mechanization, using fossil fuels. And as we make profits, we are harming the environment. We are undermining the smallholder farmers who are able to produce just a little for that small community over there. How do we promote family farming? So it's about looking at these simple, simple dynamics and going back to, to basics mm -hmm. through these 13 principles. 
back to basics. I think that is what it's all about. You know, people talk about we've we've progressed so far, but now we're looking at all these problems. But if we were to go back and just think, what have people been doing for thousands of years perfectly well um, and keeping the soil has been fine until now we've we've intervened in doing all these other different things and now we've got all these other problems. So it's really interesting what you're talking about, the importance of the knowledge of Indigenous communities, um, the people that really know about their land and about their environment and using their knowledge to actually try to make a change in what's happening um, to make sure that their food and their crops can actually grow and, and they have a, a better life, really. So I think that's really interesting that we're going back to realising the importance, the actual importance of Indigenous people and their knowledge. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Because the world for a long time has had to follow a specific model so that we say, if we do this, we are developed, mechanised agriculture, we have to import this, we have to do. But what is coming from Africa? What are we giving to the world? What knowledge can we bring to the table? How can we also give indigenous knowledge a place in academic discourse when it comes to agriculture and food systems and climate change. How can we amplify this knowledge and how, what is it that we are doing that is not right right now and what can we learn from the local communities? And is it that one segment of knowledge is superior over the other? How about this other knowledge which could be helpful, which exactly. could help us in terms of food safety, in terms of our environment, in terms of what Pope Francis is talking about in Laudato Si, the current economic model of development, we need to revisit it and ask ourselves development for who? Who is benefiting from the current model of development? So with the world leaders attending COP28, what do you believe should be the top priorities for this conference? Obviously, you, you've mentioned agroecology, um, but considering also uh, the Africa, African perspective, so you have you have spoken about that so far, but if you could just kind of summarise the top priorities. One, COP27 gave us uh, loss and damage. Uh, they passed this decision on loss and damage. And so we are watching. We want to see how this fund will be operationalised. Is it new money or are we keep going to keep pledging on the same, same, same monies that have been there? And so we need to see this fund being operationalized. And for it to be operationalized, we must take into account of the needs of the people affected by the climate change impacts. You know, polluters pay. So Africa is here. We are facing the impacts of climate change. Communities in Malawi, they have mentioned communities in the diocese of Marsabit in Kenya. They have been affected. They are losing their crops. They are losing their livestock. So how do we work together? Because if you look at the SDGs, the principle is leave no one behind. So let not one segment of society prosper while another segment of society remains at the bottom. And whereby uh, one country has to make a decision on should we develop or should we look at uh, climate change? I mean, how do we start looking at this balance so that we operationalize the loss and damage fund and communities are able to benefit from it. And another thing, there were commitments around climate finance, 100 billion per year, I think. So we are still not meeting these uh, commitments. And when we talk about climate finance, there are dimensions that we need to look at. Mm. Adaptation, how are communities able to adapt to climate change? 
when we look at these nationally determined contributions, each country makes a commitment on how it is going to take some initiatives in order to reduce, um, maybe to keep it simple, to make it, to reduce this uh, impact on climate change. These are nationally determined contributions to reduce emissions. And so each, each country will come up with proposals. We will do tree planting. We will do this. We will reduce use of plastic. And so we want to see within this climate finance that a dimension of agroecology is put there. Food systems are recognized in their nationally determined contributions. We want to see climate finance, a good portion going towards loss and damage, a good portion going towards a just transition. Because right about now, people are talking about mitigation by uh, abolishing the use of coal. We are dependent, we are addicted to fossil fuels. So how do we shift yeah. from this and have a just transition looking at the context of Africa where some economists depend on this, where you have countries like Sudan, Nigeria, this is where they are getting their incomes from. So how do we transition in a but just Lucy, way? Was you trying to say so like to transition in a just way? So it's not like one day the law is like, right, we stop. So mm -hmm. stop producing oil, stop mm -hmm. mining for the coal. And then the countries in Africa are like, okay, well, now what? This mm. was the major product that you were buying mm. from us. So now, now we're gonna now be suffering. So is that what you mean by having a yes, just transition? A just transition where you will have climate finance that pays attention so that we cushion people from the shocks that will come from this. Look at Nigeria, it depends on crude oil to make to drive its economy. The world is addicted to fossil fuels. This is the truth. Fossil fuels are causing harmful impacts on the environment. So how do we see a just transition so that we don't put countries in a situation where what do we do now? So if we stop this, this is our major economy. So how do we move from this? And we need to also have discussions on impacts on local communities. When we say we are promoting green energy, what does it mean? Will the local community down there who has worked so hard to get to the national grid, now they have to move towards solar. So how will this work for the communities who are not sitting in these international spaces to debate on this. What does the reality look like for them? So there are a lot of ethical debates around this and the practicalities that come around this. And so when we ask for climate finance, it is for these reasons, so that we ensure as we are shifting towards protecting our environment, we are protecting the communities down there who we make, as we sit in these spaces where High-level government representatives are sitting there making decisions. They need to reflect on the impact down there in the south, where when implemented, people will be affected. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you for highlighting those critical priorities. Um, I think you you just said it really clearly about basically that it's almost like we're on a two-tier system here, you know, the north and the south. And it's like the North going off doing their own thing and then just forgetting, well, actually, it's not going to apply well to other countries in the global South, for example, who can't withstand the shocks of having to suddenly stop with the fossil fuels or make all these changes that they're not set up to just absorb this kind of this these shocks that could happen. Um, and it's just making that known and making those world leaders understand that before they start making all these decisions that is going to affect the whole world, essentially. It is true. And also the, world, the leaders in Africa may have to also pay attention to these dimensions 
what does a just transition mean? Because if we are saying dependency on fossil fuel, there are things that we will have to take into account, which is the main mode of transport that they may have to invest in internally. When you're in Europe, you will see they have trains, you're able to move from London to Brussels easily. But when you come here, it is different. The public transport system is not as developed. So what does this transition mean? Because we have this dependency on fossil, how does it look like for us in the urban system? What does it mean to construct buildings which will have solar panels? How much will it cost? What is the reality for these economies which depend on debt and they pay debt, they, they service their debt in an ordinate, inordinate interest amounts? I mean, so what does climate finance mean? Because uh, countries are spending a lot of money servicing debt and they do not have enough money to address the climate change impacts. So it's really a dichotomy that we really need to address and see practically as we take decisions at COP28. Let us go back to the vulnerable communities down there who depend on people to make decisions that will make a difference for them because they are not causing these problems. They only want enough food to eat. They want their children to go to school. They do not want to find themselves exactly. being overtaxed so that governments are able to service debt. So before we wrap up, is there a particular message of hope or inspiration that you'd actually like to to give out there, share with our listeners um, about your work with Caritas Africa and the ongoing fight against climate change. So this morning I was having a chat with the chair of the Caritas Africa Advocacy Committee. His name is Father MacDonald. He's the director of uh, NCJPC Liberia. And we were discussing about climate change and the realities. And at the end of the conversation, we said each country should sit down and ask themselves, what can we do? It's not about laying the blame on other people, but what do we bring to this discourse? So if you look at your environment and you see that there's plastic pollution, what can you do? If you see that it is important for us to plant trees, green the environment, let us make investments towards that. And where people can be able to actually change and move towards solar systems so that we are reducing our dependency. So we all look at our contexts and we, all of us in our small ways, we take the responsibility to care for our environment, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So that is the message of hope because usually what happens is uh, in the international system, people will sit down and meet. Negotiations are crazy. I have been there, I've participated, I've seen what happens at COP. And it's about interests. And so at the end of it all, people go back home. You must look at what you can do for your home because these negotiators represent their governments. They will sit there and some people will push for agroecology, some people will push for climate smart agriculture. It will be discouraging when you participate in these processes. But at the end of the day, it's about you, what you can do, knowing what is right. And I'd like to encourage every other person just to go ahead and read more, interact with this discourse and see what you can do. It's about what you can do to love yourself and love your neighbor and love God. That's how we can make a difference in this climate change discourse. Well, fantastic way to end this. Love yourself, love your neighbor, and love God. Yeah. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you so much. Um, you. Your incredible insights, your inspiring words. 
Um, we are at a pivotal moment in the fight against climate change, for sure. Um, your commitment and dedication reminds us that actually, as you said, each of us can play a part in this global effort. So to our listeners, if you are as passionate about climate change as we are, the world needs your voice, your actions and your unwavering hope. Follow Kefford and Voices of Change to stay tuned in for our upcoming episodes. Until next time, take care and keep making a positive impact in the world. Thank you.